Welcome back, friends, fellow philosophers, and authors to this Wild Isle writing cast. I am very fortunate to have with me the alchemist himself out from his lab, the drunk wordsmith, Matt Waterhouse. How are you doing, Matt? Um, I'm doing well, man. It was a great intro. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I get nervous every time I do those things. Yeah, I'm really happy to, happy to have you. Um, uh, we were talking before this. Hopefully, I could end up over in a tavern somewhere and and run into you there uh, in mm-hmm. time. Uh, now, my audience, my friends, and free spirits out there listening to this podcast today, we're going to be talking about a topic that is close to my heart in that it makes me feel um, not a bitter is not the right word, but uh, you know when you just want to say "gotcha" and like slap somebody. This is this is a bit of a topic that that rings true. There, it is uh, reader rights uh, versus justified writing. So it's when the writer or when the reader is in the wrong. But before we get into it, uh, I want to show a few things. So if you want to see more of these podcasts, I'm on YouTube, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, everywhere. But you could also go to my website, which is where I'd like to send you at Wild Isle Lit. Dot com. Uh, you can check out the podcast there. Uh, while you're there, you can check out my novel, uh, Wand Smoke Broken. It's the first of a weird fantasy series that reads something like a cross between a Western and a literary novel. Uh, so if you want to check that out, go there. I've got the first chapter up for free for you to read, and I have audio of it up. Um, and I just redid the audio. So if you are familiar with Dagoth Ur from The Elder Scrolls III Morwen, well, he's just reading the first chapter of my book up on my website. Go check it out. I'm actually really happy with how that came out. Uh, also, while you're there, if you're an author and you are trying to refine your prose, uh, trying to harness something that you don't really see in a lot of modern fiction, say something from the pulps or from the classic, you can hire me. I am an editor uh, over at my website, wildislit.com slash editing. Uh, I have the Wild Isle style guide. Um, there, there's a bunch of different packages depending on how much you want to work with me and how much you need edited. Uh, but it focuses on literary style. And if you want to go all the way hardcore in, there's also a huge thematic analysis so it can help you build deep and rich themes like the classics into your own work. Do I have anything else I want to sell? I don't know. I have a blog there. I do aphorisms and, and all kinds of things. All right. I'm done selling things. Uh, Matt, uh, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about uh, what you do, where they can find your work and uh, what you know books you have out there, all that kind of stuff. Cool. Well, I am a, um, a, an, a well, I'm an English teacher by trade, sort of traveling about. Um, I, I'm getting back into a spot of travel writing, but my primary writing, I suppose, would be fantasy, science fiction, and I'm dipping my toes into a bit of horror. Um, I have a now completed fantasy series called The Four Guardians, um, featuring such wonderful things as massive hordes of unkillable undead, sieges against cities with uh, dragons, iron giants, great unknowable evils in the cosmos, and a dash of romance, camaraderie, and all that good stuff. Um, the science fiction is a bit more weird. <laughs> um, Red Saints is um, a battle between a psychopath and a zealot, and um, putting kind of putting you as the reader in the position of okay, who am I rooting for here? Because both of these people are awful. And the Eye of the Universe is I I have no idea even how to describe the Eye of the Universe. Um, but you can listen to 
the first chapter of the Eye of the Universe on my um, channel, Drunk Wordsmith, on YouTube. Um, Marquis mentioned the the tavern. Um, I have a, another channel that I have with a couple of friends called the Alchemy Lab, where um, we do some uh, kind of tabletop stuff. We do um, we did D and D, but we moved with the whole OGL stuff. We've moved over to a system that we've created called Alchemy, the Alchemy Role Playing Toolkit, and um, we're doing like a noir sort of fantasy noir um detective style campaign on there as well as the you meet in a tavern series on that same channel which is bringing on authors creators comic people generally interesting people and um and chatting to them for uh for an hour or two um anything else anything else also substack where i have um potential so I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to be doing with this story yet. It could go up as a book. It could be a thing that happens on Substack. But at the very least, the first five chapters of it are going to be on Substack, available for free for a taster of my uh, writing, which is uh, mattwaterhouse.substack.com. That's The Shattered Lands. There's also a series of short stories on there called Deadland, set in a sort of post-zombie apocalypse and there's a series of other weird and wonderful short stories on there and a bit of travel writing which will be coming in uh, the next few months excellent i think that's uh, everything yeah. <laughs> you know the more uh, more authors i talk to the more i find out that most of you you folks out there are like renaissance men uh so toes in so many different uh i not just in the aspects of writing but uh it stretches out in general. So you've got the, the travel and then education on top of that. Um, you're working in kind of, you obviously have to be working in video production. And I did um, get most, I should have gotten through the whole thing. I didn't allow myself enough time because I dove into the notes for this and uh, they were way deeper than I thought. But the uh, Eye of the Universe, which you said you didn't really know how to describe it. It was, it's really good. The the little snippet that you have the audio there. Um, it's like a uh, literary horror is the way that I would describe it in that the prose is very well constructed um, as well as the uh, narrative perspective per se is, uh, is is excellent. The focus of the, the narrator, um, it, ca it actually successfully captures uh, the experience of this, you know, being adrift alone, uh, you know, your only friend, a corpse type of deal. Like, uh, yeah, it's it's worth listening to if you haven't already. My old listeners go listen to that and check out the rest of Matt's work, which I still need to do. I'm going to admit that straight out. I've had uh, at least the first book in your fantasy series on my reading list for forever. I got it months and months and months ago and just never. Well, I've got a huge pile I'm getting through, so I apologize about that. All right. Uh, we'll, we'll go ahead. It's what and get tends to that. happen. It's what tends to yeah. happen when people read a lot of books. It's like it's I I have your book. I haven't read it yet. I'll let you know when I have. It's on there. <laughs> I promise I haven't forgotten it. But I, I appreciate no, you yeah. saying that about um the eye of the universe as well. Um it's a very I think there's it, there was very much a passion project. And it was one that I didn't even know how to approach. And it took a long time to actually almost get up the courage to write it. It's one of those that was a very a very um personal journey um writing that 
writing that book. And it's sort of, it's like, I think, yeah, I think you described it well as sort of a literary sort of science fiction, horror, psychological um, survival story, really. And one where um, it's like a battle against despair. Um, and the, yeah. the tension there is, uh, is, uh, is that a battle that is winnable in that situation? Absolutely. And... Uh, the existentialism is, is very thick in it. And you mentioned just now that it was something you, you had to work up the courage to do and you didn't really know where you were going. If, if, uh, for those of you who listened to uh, my conversation with Fallon Clark on theme, uh, we covered this actually, and it's probably going to come up in our conversation at some point um, today. But it's when you're doing that exploratory work where you don't really know exactly how you're going to approach the ground. Sometimes you stumble upon those magical moments that you can only touch on when you're actually facing it yourself right like you it's like okay i am now here how do i how do i the author survive this existential crisis and you don't know and then you're trying to find you're searching groping for the answer so yeah i i can't say i I was very impressed i was very impressed listening to that uh thank you thank you very much you're welcome yeah uh, i can praise that till the uh dogs come home all right so now let's get into today's topic before we i I could let's just start tuning your horn the whole time (laughs) so yeah yeah right uh reader rights versus justified writing okay so um before we begin uh just from the title and the the subtitle uh does this how did i should say how does this uh conversation topic uh ring to you is it is it a worthwhile conversation to try to discuss well when is it the reader and when is it the author do you do you ever see these let's say a better a better way to say this is is this something that people get confused about in your experience where people are are blaming each other when they should be blaming themselves in various instances i think it's a very easy thing for people to do i think it's it's sort of an adversarial it's part of our adversarial nature in a lot of ways that we immediately point at someone else for the fault. And I think part of it is as well, I mean, from the writer's point of view, it's something that your work is something that you labor over for a good period of time. It's something that you care a lot about. So when someone maybe reads it and isn't engaged with it, it can be, um, it can be a sort of a bitter blow. Um, in terms of the reader, I think um, not every story is going to resonate with everybody. And um, a lot of people, I think people always bring their own baggage to stories, even when they don't mean to. And it's not a, 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 it's not a thing of malice on anyone's part. I think people are shaped by their own experiences and a story is going to affect those experiences or well, their experience is going to affect how they view the story. Potentially. I'm not sure it's a good idea to assign fault in, in that kind of way. I'm not sure it's constructive or beneficial to assign fault in that kind of way either. That's sort of where I line up on it. 
Yeah, no, I, I you touched on so many of the, the topics I've got like noted out here. Um, so you mentioned the sunk cost of an author, right? Because when a reader picks up a book, they pick it up and they invest some time and, you know, some genuine time. But for the author, it's like you have this really huge risk of, let's say, want, wanting to believe it in the infallibility almost of one's work because of the labor, right? Put Like the intensive, massive amounts of labor put into it. And perhaps the uh, the baggage that the author brings, right? You mentioned reader baggage, which true. they also do bring, right? But the author yeah, has has their psychology tied up into the text. Uh, and then the reader, you know, you mentioned different people have essentially different tastes. Uh, eventually, when I get, uh, I would say, into a conversation about reader taste, because I do think that that is a, an absolutely important uh, variable, but I think that it could be discussed in a more productive way than it usually is where, you know, uh, what's the, what's the meme? That's uh, your opinion, man. Right. Like uh, you, I've seen mm -hmm. many literary conversations, you know, uh, you're familiar with the, the fallacy of the thought terminating phrase. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you've also seen the conversation terminating cliche thrown about where things get yep. reduced down to raw, pure subjectivism, where there can be no, there's no conversation left. It just becomes a war between opinions. Um, but then you're also correct when you, you bring about the the point that it, it's actually not helpful to be looking for someone to blame or to place fault on because that that assumes fault before, let's say, one's own analysis is done and prevents one from improving, whether that be the author or the reader. Uh, and a lot of times we don't really think about the reader improving as a reader, but I, I sure know from my uh, experience reading more and more and more uh, as I've gotten older that I become a better reader. And I think we'll, we'll get a chance to talk about uh, what that means. So, sure. so let's, let's, let's throw another question out there. So for us, for the, reader to be in the right or the author to be in the right about a particular aspect of a, of a work of fiction, let's say, right? That, that requires us to assume that there is in fact, let's say, better and worse writing or better and worse executions of different forms of writing, right? Like there has to be, if it's, it's either um, entirely arbitrary, but if it's not entirely arbitrary, there is some standard around which perhaps multiple means can be reached to success, but then also there are, uh, you know, things that an author can do, uh, or that a reader can perceive that miss the mark. So I guess the question I'm throwing out there is how much do you think that writing is, I uh, would say, can be done well? Uh, and how much do you think is attributable to uh, preference? Yeah, that would be the question. How much of it is like objectively better or worse writing and how much of it is uh, preference? Um, that's the great question um, that I don't think anyone particularly has an answer for. Um, in terms of what is objectively good, in a story or in a or in a novel 
I mean, you're looking at a, a lot of different things. You're looking at the story itself. Um, I suppose you're looking at the prose and how it's constructed. You may be looking at how many, I don't know, how many typos, how many mistakes there are in a book. I mean, it's potentially, it could be something that, I mean, I think that's maybe a little bit anal, but it, it depends. You know, it might be something that rips you out of a story. Um, I think the the way to, I think what conquers maybe all of it is the story itself. I think as long as your story makes sense within its own logic, and as long as it, as long as it doesn't betray its own, betray its own logic and step away from its core idea, I think you're onto something. And I think you're onto something that would be considered objectively good. Um, yes. So there's, there has to be some form of order, right? Because the logic is that it's not chaos. It has to, uh, you could say, if we're looking at it from an Aristotelian perspective, it has to have a form, right? Um, along with other well, we, things. Does it, go ahead, go ahead. We don't even need to, to go into that kind of territory. It needs to, it needs to have, in order, if, if it makes sense within itself, if it has its own set of logic, that means that there's a cause and effect which means there's stakes. And if there's stakes, that means there's tension. And that means that you have a reason to care because the characters have something to lose. The characters potentially could be killed or irrevocably changed or, or just be, be ruined in some way. Not like it in a, a bad writing sense, but like emotionally ruined. So there is something there to invest the reader to the next to the next uh, point and will hopefully carry them through to the end uh, yeah actually that's uh that's a, where i was going actually which is really cool that means i'm okay. thinking on the same no it is uh <laughs> so i'm going to throw this out with the um particular uh philosophical terms now i know you said you didn't have to go here but i think perhaps we do though uh, we don't have to say it in the way that I'm about to. It might be a little bit pedantic. Um, okay. But the, so as opposed to Plato, so like Plato had like the form, but Aristotle um, included more things to know what a thing is. And we talk about what a story is, right? We talked about, you know, for it to be a good story at the very least, like we're, we're really what we're looking at is, okay, what is a bad story? And let's move a step away from that. And then we can start to orient ourselves. Because that's what we're saying is like, if it a, a, a good story at the very least doesn't betray itself, right? That's sort of like the mm -hmm. uh, law of non-contradiction, but in terms of narrative. And that's actually, um, for those listeners out there, if you ever want to figure something out, a lot of the time you can do that by not asking what is a thing, but asking what is it not? And then as I drift away from what it is not, then you can find what it is. So um, the the four aspects that Aristotle came up with, or I don't know if he came up with them, but he articulates are um, the mover, the form, the substance, and the telos. Um, to skip over a little bit, the mover and the substance don't tend to be as important to a story. Uh, 
for instance, like if a story happened to be randomly typed by a chimp on a typewriter, but you can still read it and it's still a story, like and the chimp just got really lucky, we wouldn't suddenly say it's not a story. Uh, we might attribute the story to luck as opposed to the chimpanzee who didn't know what he was doing, just randomly battling, babbling on a keyboard or something, but that's not important, right? So the mover or where it came from, we could throw away. Substance doesn't seem to be very important either. Uh, it could be light on a screen. It could be chiseled in rock, uh, printed in a book, et cetera, et cetera. But form and telos, which is like purpose or function, those two things seem to be key to this conversation, right? Because we, if we're looking for that 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 question, right? That you said, like, hey, well, that's the, the the big the big question, right? Is uh, how much of this is objective? How much of this is subjective or preference preference based? Well, if a story needs to have a form in order to not betray itself, what do I mean by that? Right? So I'm trying to connect our two ideas. The idea that it has a logic means that it necessarily will have a cause and effect. Now. You mentioned you moved from cause and effects to uh, stakes, and I do think we can get there. But actually, I think um, in order for us to get there, we require some form of structure that we typically call plot. And what I mean by that is that uh, for there to be to get from cause and effect to stakes, what ends up coming in there is conflict of some kind, whether that be an unanswered question, whether that be an unmet desire, uh, let's say an aversion that can't be avoided or currently can't be avoided. Um, the introduction of that into a fictional world of cause and effect then produces uh, plot structure that then makes something at stake. Um, and then we get the the rest of, you know, if you're, you're obviously going to be familiar with Freytag's triangle. Um, those who are listening should be familiar with it by now, so I won't go over it. So that's uh, form, right? The narrative form seems to be exactly what you just described from cause and effect. Um, the introduction of a conflict produces necessarily the stakes that make the whole story, uh, which plays upon its own logic. Um, and insofar as that logic is consistent, doesn't contradict itself, that seems at the very least to produce a story as opposed to a non-story. And we could say that a, a story is better at being a story than a non-story. Um, but then that brings us to Telos. And I'm going to end up passing this back to you because I've been talking for way too long. Um, so telos being the purpose, I like to use the word function because I think people get, they get caught up when you use the word purpose on the idea of a subject. Uh, but so, and oftentimes per, like the telos of a thing is imparted to it by a subject, like a good knife is cuts well, requires things that use knives to cut with. However, a good acorn grows into an oak tree, does not require a subject to, uh, let's say, evaluate the acorn. So um, that's why I use the word function. So my question is, if we're trying to pin down what would be good or bad writing in terms of whether it's objective or subjective, we could say, well, does it, does it have, do, do stories have a telos? Do they have a function, whether that is imparted by us human subjects or whether that's intrinsic to the form itself? Um, that's the question, right? Do do stories have a telos? Um, hmm. 
I think they, well, I, I mean, I suppose they have a number of different ones. Um, stories are there to serve a bunch of, to serve a bunch of functions. Um, they're there to, I mean, they, these functions have kind of changed across time as well, but I think they, they still have the same kind of basic function of imparting universal truths and imparting information. Well, no, we'll say imparting universal truths and potentially resonating emotionally. That's more of a subjective thing because you can't control someone else's emotions. But a story also has plenty of different functions. It can entertain. It can be used to create a political point or a philosophical point. It could be used to impart impart information historically um or otherwise um i mean this the it used to be i mean stories used to be how we would just communicate information when that's how these things have i mean it's how we existed as a species for a long time we had like the the elder who would tell stories and those stories would help the tribe survive I mean, yeah, the emotional resonance is is more is more difficult to kind of pin down because again, you can't you can't account for people's minds and and emotions. If you're trying to impart, I mean, I, I suppose if you're trying to impart certain emotions at certain times, you can give it your best shot, um, and try and work within. I guess try and work within whatever framework it can, but I mean, it's. Whether you're successful or not isn't necessarily up to you, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely think whether you're successful isn't up to the the author. Even if you do really well, you do have a subject at the other end who does have an interpretive structure made up by a bunch of different factors. Um, but I do, I think we will get back into that here soon. I have this whole uh, bit on taste that will that will become relevant. And I think you'll actually find it uh, interesting, the, the, the mm. line of argumentation there um, when we go down. But at the very least, uh, we've identified that, yeah, like stories do have functions, a multitude of functions. Okay. So uh, would you say then that if we take into account the function of a particular story and its form, so that's like its, its internal coherence and how well it performs the function that it um, sets out to do. And when I say how well it, it, it performs its function, I'm thinking in terms of something similar to how we think about medicine, right? Because like with medicine, it it's like a statistical probability. Like it, it works with most people in this way with the, this potential risk of negatives coming about. And so with some people, it's not going to work at all. Some people are going to have a reaction to a, a medicine or whatever. But in general... We can say that, like, you know, a work doing if it has a particular, uh, a number of particular elements in its form that facilitate a particular function with a a degree uh, enough of success, then we would say, like, okay, or could we say that there is some objective basis on which we could say that writing could be better or worse. Mm. 
Hmm. Hmm. Tricky. I mean, I suppose. Yeah. Hmm. Objectively speaking. Uh, probably. It's something that needs to be, that we probably need to pass out a little bit. Yeah, I think we could do that with, um, we could talk about theme a little bit because you talked about universal truths as well. Um, mm. And this, I think this might solidify it a little bit. So in my conversation again with Fallon, uh, we talked about theme. And one of the things we brought up is that theme, uh, the, I actually think it's the other way around. I think the word thesis is derived from theme or maybe it's the other way around. Either way, they share um, an etymological branch and they actually kind of mean the same thing. So when a stories, because a lot of times, and this is not, at least over here in America, this is not well distinguished from ideas like motifs, and I think is really done a disservice in at least our education systems, um, maybe over there in the, you're in the UK, right? Yes. Yeah. Maybe I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet much. on it. But... <laughs> uh, I'd hope you guys are doing better because we're not doing too great over here. I'll tell you what, um, I, I didn't mention it before, but I, um, I taught uh, English composition and literature at university for a few years. So we have uh, a bit of that in common. Um, and what I saw from teaching those courses and from taking them when I was in those courses is that this, the idea of theme in literature was very poorly articulated. Uh, when I started teaching it, I realized, okay, I know what theme is now. Um, and what a theme is, it's, it is the meta narrative argument right so it, that of that universal claim so a story uh to, to i don't want to have to go over the, the whole giant thing so i'll just throw this at you and you can tell me if it makes sense given that a story has a particular form that's centered around a conflict you can think of it like okay you've got you know if you've got people or whatever in this situation of this conflict and they take these actions under those circumstances the result will be whatever the resolution of the story is, right? So if you have these types of people under these circumstances and they do these things, this is the result, right? Like, um, you know, if you're, uh, if you're Hamlet and you have this duty to take, uh, take revenge for the justice of your father, but you want to make the vengeance as bitter and terrible and painful as possible, what ends up happening is that everyone, like all your all the people that you know, the people that you love yourself are going to die in this bitter atrocity and your enemies take over everything because you held on to that bitterness rather than listening to the ghost of your father who said, just do the just thing and stop torturing your mom, bro. Um, so, sorry, uh, sorry to profane Shakespeare that way. Uh, but the idea is that the theme is that argument. Like the theme, necessarily all works of fiction by their nature of being... Uh, let's say stories that contain a plot, they will have some theme in them, whether or not the author intended and whether or not the reader notices it. Uh, but there is an argument being made. Um, does that sound valid to you? Yeah, I think I think it does. Yeah, and and they, I, I okay. Yeah, I think it, yeah that makes sense to me. I think that when when an author is writing something. I don't even think the author is conscious of every theme that they're putting into a into a story. I think that subliminally things get into a into a book 
that other people spot and they say, hey, I really like how you addressed this thing. And they'll be when someone says that to me, I go, oh, OK. Did I mention that? Is that something I went out to address? Uh, I guess. Well, I guess it was somewhere in the back of my mind. It's something that um, that came through on the page and it, it sort of slipped my mind. I think I've just to sort of loop slightly. I, I wanted kind of. So there's a couple of things here. Well, the, with the objectivity of stories, but also with um, with theme. I think part of the when did when did you teach English at college? It was a few years ago now, so I think I would have started maybe in twenty twenty. I was only there, or maybe not twenty nineteen. I think twenty nineteen. Yeah, I right. started teaching. Okay, so the the type of English I teach, I think I the way I do it is different to the way you do it. I think my teaching is more like as a second language, like the construction of the language and communication and things like that. But I have taught GCSE English, which is like basically like high school exam level English. And the the difference as it's gone across the years that I've done it is pretty striking. I think the, this is sort of the, de the devolution of the education system. At the moment, it's very much locked into the contemporary. It's locked into we must shape this we must shape these stories around what is going on now. And we have to be making some kind of societal point about our society now that wasn't necessarily relevant in this story, but we're kind of imparting our own things, our own opinions and our own as the, I mean, the, I'm talking about the teachers, they're like imparting their own personal philosophies or political philosophies or what have you into the book and passing it off as what the author intended which is not doing any of the students any favors because what they're basically learning is a bunch of lies about what the book actually is um this is something i don't know if you know the play an inspector calls i do not well why don't you fill me in about it in brief it's it's a very British play, um, so I'm not surprised. Anyone who's done GCSE, GCSE English will have done this because I did it when I was at GCSE level. Um, and that was about sort of 16, 17, 18 years ago. Um, basically, it's a play set just before the First World War. And it's um, it centers around this very wealthy family. And a police inspector comes in. To their, they're having just sort of a family gathering, family get together. Things are about to go very well for them. And an inspector comes in and the inspector informs them that a girl um, has died. Um, she's uh, I think she killed herself uh, by she, sorry, we're on YouTube. She uh, Minecrafted herself by <laughs> um, by uh, drinking too much lava or something i don't know what the equivalent for how she minecrafts herself would be on youtube but um and it's he the inspector goes to each member of this family and outlines how each member of this family individually affected this girl so one of them she was like a, this is is set in 1911 or 1912 i think and um right at the beginning of the suffragettes and and she's she went on strike for more pay so the dad fired her from her job 
and she kind of she annoyed the daughter so the daughter got her fired from another job and the fiance of the daughter kind of took her up as a mistress and kind of wined her and dined her and it's about it's sort of about how the upper classes basically kind of toy with and screw with the lower classes and things like that and um it it gets there's sort of gender stuff in there as well but it's a it's a good play i think it's a very good play um but one that is right it's it's ripe for stapling a lot of contemporary stuff into it that um that can lead people uh, up the garden path i think when it comes to objectivity though of stories i i had a sort of brainwave about sport i don't know if you're a sport man um not not quite um i'm i'm fairly athletic but i've never been into to sports but you know never played right. uh that'd be like baseball over mm-hmm. here do you guys actually still play cricket or is that just like a thing of the the old times we we do but that sort of brings me on to the brings me on to the point which is um what would you say the most popular sports are on in uh, in the world oh it's definitely um like football and i mean like european football what we would call soccer over mm-hmm. here yeah. uh except in america i think american football I, I i do think is more popular than uh what we typically well no one says european football they all say soccer but i yeah. listen to like, way uh, too many brits so <laughs> it's well you you called it the right thing which is football but association football we'll say right I think part of the reason why that is way more popular than something like cricket is the story involved in each game. Like so there are the amount of the amount of variables in your average football match pr- prior to the game after the game like you have the context of the league so what will a win do for this team what are the stakes for this team what are the stakes for that team what happened in the last match between these two? Did did someone win? Did someone lose? Was it a draw? Was someone sent off? Was there a bad injury? Was it high scoring? Was it low scoring? And then into the game itself, like a million things can happen. I mean, a million is lowballing it. A million things can happen on a football pitch over 90 minutes. And in, in like in just in terms of what's happening on the pitch itself like that's t- not even taking the fans into account the fans could riot at any point <laughs> during the match <laughs> like they and someone is going to potentially someone's going to win and it's going to cause heavy consequences potentially for another team and it, it i think that's part of why it is as popular as it is there's the stories happening on the individual level and the larger story of what's happening with the team and both teams, then the larger story of what's happening with the league, then the large story again of what's happening with all the leagues. Because in in Britain, we've got the promotion and relegation stuff. So if you do, especially badly in a season, you go to a lower league and then the team that does well goes up to the, replaces you in the league you were in, essentially. So there's consequences there, yeah, and I, I like... don't I don't know about objectively, 
but for but it it feels like objectively that is more engaging than something like than something like cricket where it doesn't necessarily have that it doesn't have that level of um tension within the rules like the guy will throw the ball the other guy will hit the ball it will go somewhere you have to run between the posts and the games last for several days and I, I don't really know how they calculate who wins. It, it doesn't really grip the the psyche as much as as association football does. And I feel like there are objective criteria there that tells you why. Yes, I actually think there's a really good analog for writing coming back into this. So I do agree that there does seem to be, I don't know if it's the complexity. I don't think it's merely the complexity, but I think it's the complexity in relation to the stakes in relationship to how the rules present themselves to both the players and to the um, spectators, right? The audience. So when you combine all of those things, there's some amount of engagement that's possible. So the rules um, of engagement and the consequences are clear enough to the audience that they can follow them and understand them. But they're complex enough that there is a enough variability um, that you you have this unpredictability, right? So there's some novelty there. And because of the multitude of hierarchies with the uh, ability to go up and down leagues, and eventually this becomes this massive international hierarchy, the stakes can get very, very big, right? And so the uh, audience can participate in that. With writing, I think we have something similar. However, I think that most people um, would say, I'm going to make this argument, are more sophisticated sports spectators than they are readers, right? So like it's, uh, you're going to find a higher proportion of, let's say, I would say the world's population who can engage with a sophisticated system of spectator sports, then you're going to find, um, can do the same thing with, let's say, fiction. Um, and that brings us to, uh, what are we like 40, 50 minutes into the conversation that brings us to the, the actual <laughs> conversation topic at hand. Right. And um, right. I'm going to, I think we'll start with reading and then we'll jump to writing. Like there are obviously, I don't know, but obviously we'll get to writing. I will skip over it. So with reading, <laughs> there's, there's two things I want, before I forget, um, I'm going to go through my list backwards. Cause you hit the last thing I have notes on first. You mentioned professors, essentially contaminating a text with their uh, misinterpretations, right? Now, that doesn't mean that... So obviously they could have the intentional themes imparted there by the author. They could be unintentional imparted there by the author. Um, But nonetheless, the the argument would be there are themes there. Like Like they exist and they, in a sense, are... Their their detection is variable, but their uh, let's say existence is not. They objectively are there in the text, or they're not there in the text. Now, maybe mm. you need the right context in order to see them, right? In the same way that you can't you can't understand the theme of a work written in French if you don't read French, right? Unless you get it tra- right. assuming it's not translated, right? So you need the proper mm-hmm. context and be able to absorb it. But what someone can do. And this is where I would say someone could read something badly is they could project uh, something either they expect 
or they want onto a work um, in order to get some, let's say, benefit from it um, that, let's say, comes at the cost of what is there, right? It's, it's sort of, uh, and sometimes not even to get a benefit. I've actually seen people project onto a work I guess to get the benefit of criticizing something that either wasn't written or wasn't said, I guess there would be that benefit. Um, so you mentioned seeing, uh, let's say, teachers and professors do that with classic literature. Have you seen uh, any other examples of um, people projecting onto works where they're they're literally interpreting a work? To, to say something that you logically cannot get out of it. It has to be like they're adding something to it or, or they're stripping elements away to get to their conclusions. Mm. Um, oh, let me think. I think with, um, with cinema, I think this happens, this happens quite often. Um, I've, I've seen it more often in cinema than in novel form, I think. Um, trying to think of an example though. It's uh, hmm. I think um, okay. So I I've seen so an example of this that was sort of a um, this this was a in fact you know what there's a couple thinking about it. Um, so there was an example of you you're familiar with Star Trek. I'm familiar with Star Trek. I've actually never watched Star Trek. I know enough about it mm. due to cultural assimilation, right. so I might be able to follow. Okay. Well, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, is a um, is a film that is kind of notoriously the worst one. <laughs> I mean, there'll be debate about that. I think I don't think it's the worst one, but it's sort of pop-culturally considered to be the worst one. Um, and there was a reviewer sort of semi-jokingly but also i think almost literally he said um he's he's interpreting this as being um like um a bourbon and bean infused dream that captain kirk is having because it's like it's a completely because the, the the story is sort of completely absurd it's like the search for god at the center of the galaxy and the dimensions of the Enterprise suddenly stop making any sense at all. And people's characters kind of go a little bit off the rails that have been established for a long time. And he just goes, I'm, I'm just going to see it as a fever dream and enjoy it that way. Now, like, and that's kind of fair enough in a sense. Um, but it's, it's, still not, it's still not good. I think the, a, more, a more, not insidious, but a more troubling example is um star trek picard so star trek picard season well actually all of star trek picard to a degree this is this is partly the reader but also the writer completely misunderstanding misunderstanding what star trek is I think for the for the sake of of the conversation, we'll we'll skip to the third season where it's the reader. The first two seasons of that show are terrible, and the third season is okay. But people um people who are watching that, I think, really glommed onto it because 
it was okay as opposed to terrible. And that elevated it to a point, in their minds, elevated it to a point where it was amazing. And they sort of looked past a lot of very stupid things that were happening in the story that they would not have looked past in other stories because they wanted to enjoy it rather than wanting to be have their own kind of critical integrity. If that makes sense. Yeah, that's sort of like um, a viewer sunk cost. Um, a good comparison I could make would be a lot of the um, YouTubers who were covering uh, like a Song of Ice and Fire content and then the show came out and they, they, they kept going and, you know, the first two seasons were okay and then it was all right and it started getting a wavery. And then by the time you get to season eight, you have these people celebrating uh, horribly written episodes like you're you're watching them do it and you're immediately saying okay you've invested so much of your mm. you know life and energy and time into this fandom and you, it's like you can't turn back now you can't like mm. turn on yourself right and so you start to look for anything um that would redeem <laughs> redeem what you're watching um mm. any no matter how small and say okay well that's good right Mm. If I may, if I may put you on the spot, please, please do. As a, as a reader yourself, can you recognize a time that you've done that, where you've like oh, yeah. put yes. something onto <laughs> a story and it's either come out far better in your eyes or far worse in your eyes, but it's because of what you put onto it rather than than the story itself. Okay, absolutely. So um, you've actually had as a guest uh, Amaya Tenchi in her um, novel series, uh, the Dracula's Guest series, uh, Dracula's Match is out, which I need to read. I have a copy of it. I just don't have, I'm getting to it, I promise. So uh, <laughs> when I first read her work, um, and for a long time, I, I projected my notions of, um, let's say, masculine interest onto dracula right so uh in my my animal brain there's only two reasons um that i i would give that dracula would have uh any interest in bothering interacting with cami at all um so the two are either uh there's a romantic interest or it's like that's like dad daughter relationship because in my head like or not even in my head, like in my body, that's the only two reasons that immediately knee jerk are believable. I'm not thinking about the fact that this is like a reanimated uh dude from another time existentially dealing with the fact that he's in modernity and like we're lamenting about modernity. Now imagine if we come from like um like a thousand years ago, uh mm. right, and like and then you're here and you're you're okay so you're going to be you're going to be in that existential <laughs> crisis uh way more than we are and we already can't deal with it and i wasn't thinking about that even though that is what is presented on the page um i even in uh i even went back and read certain sections uh to to essentially fix my own understanding but because i had that instinctive impulse um i had misread vlad's character um, and I, I'm ashamed of that. So if anyone wants to get on me about that for wronging 
uh, Amaya, please do. I deserve it. I deserve all the punishment for being a bad reader in that case. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, do you have? I can't any comment on that necessarily because I haven't. No. <laughs> uh, similar to you, like I have, I have Dracula's. I have Dracula's guest, which is the first one, and it is. I think it it is like I have a queue of stories, and I think it's like the second one in the queue uh, after the current one I'm reading. So, yeah. Well, you're not to blame. All of the uh, indie author ladies that I know all released books like in the same week. Uh, like I think it was <laughs> uh, like uh, some, some here's some shout outs to you all there online. Uh, Amy Sutfin, Leslie Shu, and Amaya. I think they all, and somebody else did too. I can't remember who. But they I, all released. I mean, well, new in the last month or so, I released Empire of Fire. They've all released stuff, and Timo Burnham has released something. Yeah, so, so it's, it's everybody it, all at once. Yeah, uh, so it's not our Timo fault. Burnham We're trying. Yeah. yeah, I just had Timo. I just had Timo on actually. Uh, uh, for the prior week's conversation. So those listeners mm-hmm. will know, we'll get to know Timo there. Um, so that's, that's projection. I, I wanted to, to cover um, while we still have time. Another, this is what, this isn't exactly a reader error, right? So it's not like the reader is doing something wrong, but I think this is very important when we consider, um, you know, we're talking a lot about objectivity and when, you know, so you can have objectively, you can interpret a work wrong. Like it's just not in the text and the, the interpretation came from us, but this is different. This is talking about subjectivity and it has to do with taste and whether one's taste is uh, decadent or not. Now, um, listeners okay. will, will know I'm very, yeah, the listeners will know I'm very much a fan of uh, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, and so this is about to be a bit of a Nietzschean argument here. But the way that it would go is that your taste um, can be habituated either, uh, let's say, to fulfill your telos as a human being or against it, right? What that means is that um, your taste can be geared toward pushing you toward virtue, or they could be geared toward pushing you toward vice. In virtue, in the sense, in the classical sense, like they might mean it in like a, a Greek epic, it's eudaimonia, right? Human flourishing. Uh, Nietzsche would say something like, "You look at the world and you say that it's good, like it just not despite all of the suffering in it, but because of all of the suffering and all of the joy, and because of all of it." you're able to look at it and say, yes, I want to exist in this world that I am in, uh, versus vice would lead, and get in the Nietzschean sense, would lead one to say, no, I, I think this world is unjustified and that therefore it ought to be destroyed. That ends up being the argument, by the way. Uh, I, I have read through Faust. I need to read it again. I need to read through all of Goethe, but um, I, I, I quote this because JPP, Jordan Peterson, quotes it a million times. So i got to memorize it too, is the little bit by Mephistopheles, I am the spirit that negates, and rightly so, for all that comes to be deserves to perish wretchedly, um, which is to say that being itself deserves not to be, that would be what justice is. And I think our tastes orient us in either of those directions, right? Uh, and what that would mean is that one's taste in literature 
now remember our conversation about theme, and you can tell me what you think about all this here here in a second. Uh, our, our our conversation about theme that there is an argument or, or a claim about a universal truth, or at the very least a human truth, if not a universal one. And if that is a good argument, or a better word is if that's a sound argument, meaning that it logically follows and also the premises are true, then that argument, um, let's say if you have virtuous tastes, you will like the story that when you read it imparts upon you that universal truth that uh, facilitates your human flourishing. But if you have vicious tastes, viceful tastes, vicious tastes, you will only enjoy um, those sweet treats which are comforting perhaps in the moment, but rot one from the inside that make you less able to face the world and to make you curse the world. Uh, again, if we want to want to use some... Uh, religious symbolism like Cain, right, to to say this world is rotten and I'm going to take vengeance upon it, right? So um, I think one reader error actually is not recognizing that just because all you like to eat is candy doesn't mean that candy is good, if that makes sense, right? Now, what do you, what do you think? I, I ranted on for a long time. What do you think about all that? Um, uh, if I'm, if I'm understanding correctly, your, your suggestion for a cure to that would be in a reader sense, reading more or reading outside of what you normally read. Yeah. You basically habituate yourself to something that challenges you and see what happens. Um, I think, uh. Okay, I mean, I think there's, I think there's a, an argument there um, for for that being an error. I think, though, um, I think a story can resonate with someone who um, who only eats candy in the same way that someone who eats um, red meat and greens. I don't, I don't, I don't see the. This is this sort of comes back to the weeb argument, which I've I've had with a couple of people. It's it's the problem isn't necessarily. Well, no, I suppose that that is sort of the, the conclusion of the weeb argument I was having is that the idea that people, the idea that people are reading something narrow and maybe it would be better for them as writers to read more widely um is sort of the conclusion that you come to with the weeb argument which doesn't necessarily which isn't necessarily a weeb thing that's just a person thing or or a, a candy eater thing um i uh i mean I think vice. I mean, I, I I get the vice thing. I, it's the virtuous tastes that are that are sort of escaping me here. So to sort of clarify that a little bit, what you mean by yeah. virtuous tastes? So by virtuous tastes, um, I mean, let's say in the case of um, literature, it's something that you read, and then when you read it, it 
teaches you something or it affects your attitude in such a way that you become better equipped to face the challenges of life in such a way that you do not become embittered, right? So let's say um, this is outside the context of fiction, but I do a blog and I do, I've been doing it on a lot of Eastern philosophy because I trained in a traditional system of martial arts in which this philosophy was, uh, philosophy was implicit. But I really wanted to understand it explicitly. And so I started uh, going through the Tao Te Ching and the Zhuangzi. And then I went through the Four Books of Confucianism. I'm going through um, the Dhammapada, which is one of the Buddhist texts. Um, and in the meantime, I've uh, read through uh, other philosophical works outside the Eastern tradition, and uh, particularly Nietzsche. Nietzsche is probably a better place to start, actually. So, um, so in terms of virt like virtuous tastes, like if you pick up Nietzsche and you try to read Nietzsche, what you realize right away, unless you're projecting your own whatever you want onto the work, you realize like, oh, I'm too dumb to understand this. Like immediately it hits you in the face. Like if you have any sense of humility, you start to realize it's either this is garbledygook or I am ill-equipped. And if you don't assume that it's garbledygook and you sit down and you say, okay, what is he saying here that he's purposely made hard to understand? And then as you start to pick it apart, um, not only do you learn what he's arguing in, in that particular aphorism, uh, but you also learn to find the truth in things. And if I had not read all of Nietzsche, this is kind of why I, I wanted to bring him into that uh, conversation, I would have been ill-equipped to be able to pick out all of the, let's say, really wise content that is in the Tao Te Ching, that's in the Zhongzi, that's in the Four Books of Confucianism, uh, and in the Dhammapada, because they, they're not written in the very explicit way that you would want, say, something like, I don't know, a self-help book to be written, right? Um, it's it's very cryptic, and I think that, I do think that is part of the cultures that they're written in, particularly the Chinese, uh, and I think that has something to do with the fact that they use a pictographic uh, written language system, though that might be due to their their cultural propensities for thinking in a certain way. I don't know which comes first, the chicken or the egg. The point being that... Um, I had to go through a long process of struggling to understand, um, to habituate myself, to gain a skill that then allowed me to gain wisdom. And then that wisdom actually allows me to, if I bring this all the way back to writing, to write uh, deeper stories. Now, I'm not sitting there, you know, typing away at my keyboard thinking, I'm going to impart this, but I, I experience the world more deeply because I have more avenues of questions and more uh, ways of looking at the world because of the studies that then bring more problems to the forefront of my imagination, uh, essentially because I've experienced them secondhand through books. Uh, and then I'll end it with this, a little answer to the virtuous, um, virtuous reading, let's say in this case, like uh, to two books in particular are two authors. So Cormac McCarthy and H.P. Lovecraft talk about them all the time. Uh, Cormac McCarthy writes in a very stream of consciousness way and doesn't really care if you get lost. But reading Cormac McCarthy and getting through his style and learning to, it's difficult, uh, actually, a lot of the time. But when you get good at it, um, you learn about rhythm 
that does you learn how to uh, to read according to the the natural cadence of the sentence, and then when you go to write, you'll find that there's a le- an element of music in your writing. The same thing is actually true for Lovecraft in a different sense. It's less melodic, but his writing, the sentence structure, sometimes you might say, like, why is this sentence a paragraph long, Lovecraft? That's not necessary. But the reality is, if you engage with it enough, you start to realize, oh, there is a natural rhythm here that facilitates these particular pauses. And when you when you find them, you find that there's this really eerie cadence that lends itself. So there's something in the construction of the prose that actually affects the tone of the story. And then you enjoy the story more. And then, as again, coming back as an author, that becomes another tool in my toolkit that I can use to, uh, let's say, improve the tone of a particular in a particular composition of prose. Okay, I went on for a long time again, but does that answer your question? It does, and I, I have to say I don't buy it. No, I don't buy that. I don't. I, I don't buy that. Um, I don't buy that idea necessarily of the virtuous of that sort of of the virtuous reader versus the vice reader, um, because I think a story is more than i think a story is more than i think like there's there's something to be said for clarity in work there's something to be said for the the clear communication of ideas in a work i think like in in terms of a vice in terms of a vice story i mean so i i'm reading i i have um lovecraft's various works on my um I think I have all of his works actually because they were on sale for like 50p and I was like yes I'm having them boom and I got um I've got all his work and what I've read like some of his stuff some of his stuff is very very is it, some of it like it, he does he sets a scene well and he he does atmosphere very well but his verboseness is sometimes very very it it can bog you down it, it, it's like he's it's not but well it, it bog he bogs himself down in his own verbosity whereas you can get that kind of virtuous you can get that kind of virtuous feeling and that that truth you can get that from something incredibly simple rather than uh rather than some rather than nietzsche i don't know if that's it uh, and we may be approaching the same thing from different angles and i may be I getting hung up on complexity here yeah it's, I, I don't... go ahead go ahead like um in terms of like in terms of vice uh, so in terms of vice I would look at a lot of kind of modern cinema for that. I would look at something like, um, I don't know, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny that's just come out, which um, is by all means an absolute disaster of an absolute disaster of storytelling and cinema. More convinced, more concerned with. Um, semi-biting political commentary and visual semi-splendor than telling a story 
Whereas something like, well, to, I mean, to stick with the same thing with something like Raiders of the Lost Ark, that has its sort of the way that communicates itself and communicates the story and communicates its ideas is a lot more concise, a lot more visually striking with far less than something like than something like the dial of destiny i'd say like that that would be the vice and virtue in within that framework of, of indiana jones yeah that makes sense so the 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 vicious one essentially is essentially it's it's propaganda right in a, a real sense like uh, there is a, a political agenda being tossed in that's getting in the way of something that would could otherwise be, uh, let's say, virtue um, mm. imbuing. And the virtue imbuing thing is the actual story about the um, adventuring hero, right? Because there's something to learn and to emulate mm. there. And it doesn't. And I do. I do think we shouldn't get caught up on the complexity. Those are my particular experiences though yeah. i will say that an inability the degree to which one is unable to digest complex things is an inability to uh let's say improve one's virtue in some measure like there's going to be a ton of virtuous stuff that's simple i'm not gonna i'm not saying that there isn't but what i'm saying is if one has a, a limited ability to imbibe literature then that's going to limit the number of pieces of literature that one can imbibe including the virtuous ones um, well i mean the where where i'm coming from there is nietzsche shouldn't be your your barrier to entry for being a virtuous reader is is kind of no, what i'm getting at i think to not, kind no. of <laughs> i think to kind of clarify my my point a little bit more i was i was watching somebody um on youtube and they were reviewing something i can't remember what it was they were reviewing but they were talking about modern movies and they said modern movies are forgetful and i think what he meant was forgettable but the more i thought about it the more i was like actually both forgettable and forgetful are correct right because they are forgettable like when a when a film comes out in the cinema it doesn't resonate I mean, and I think this is, we're at a point now where it can be said, not just for the individual, but societally, it doesn't resonate with people. Like I, I think about something like Avatar as a, as a modern, as a modern, um, well, I don't know, let's leave Avatar out of it. The, the forgettableness, the forgetfulness, see, I've used the bloody wrong word now, the forgetfulness of a of modern cinema is it seems like people have forgotten how to effectively communicate a character and people have forgotten how to to properly establish the stakes in a story and part of it is because of the political um agenda that some of the some of it is pushing but even in in things that aren't necessarily political it's it just seems like that is a lost art for a lot of modern um, filmmakers that you just can't make that kind of story anymore and i'm like why not surely and i'm not i did, i'm not i'm not discounting like 
independent cinema or anything like that. I'm talking about mainstream cinema here. There's just um, absolutely forgotten how to to tell a story, and I don't quite understand how that's happened. Well, I, I might be able to to tie that back in. I think the reason why is well, the people now these are large projects, so there's lots of people making decisions. But across that span of people, let's say in the context of cinema, and I think you could say this with the context of literature as well, um, there mm -hmm. is a dearth of people of virtue, particularly courage, because in order to make something that resonates, it has to have, I would argue, it has to have a theme that's relevant now. And that, so the, the, the theme, the thesis, the argument, the claim, it can't just be true. It has to be tackling something that the people making it are genuinely trying to answer. I had a conversation, uh, it was on art versus escapism. We ended up talking about propaganda too. And uh, mm. this is relevant to my, to my answer here. I got to throw this in. So if you imagine a spectrum, on one end, you have pure escapism. On the other end, you have pure propaganda. Um, and in between there somewhere is art, right? And mm -hmm. when you're making something that is artistic, whatever the medium, you are on a genuine explanation to answer a question that you didn't have the answer to when you started. Right. So the, in the context of literature or even a movie, um, that's mm. going to be um, the theme of that movie, the, the claim it makes. And so the, the something about the characters in the conflict involved with the plot and how that resolves has to be a risk taking enterprise for the person making it because you are like we talked about before, you're exploring some new territory as opposed to propaganda where you already know, uh, and also as opposed to um, escapism where it's perhaps it is something that has either already been done or just is of no consequence and it allows one to distract him or herself from those problems instead of engaging with them. So in one sense, there's like a total disengage with the explorative um, let's say, a process of artistic creation. And on the other end, there's like this arrogant uh, assumption that one already knows the answer and is just force feeding it to the audience. And how to relate that to virtue and vice? Well, I think the two, uh, the, the concept of the Aristotelian mean is really useful here because the Aristotelian mean doesn't mean like the average, like we think of it now. It means just not in uh, excess and not in deficiency. So it's that place where one has, you know, that could be closer to one extreme than the other. It moves depending on what you're talking about. But the idea is if we have a dearth of courage and we have, uh, let's say, an excess of, in the propaganda sense, arrogance, or perhaps we have a, a, a dearth. I don't know what the opposite of the word lazy is. So I'll put it in the vicious sense. We have an excess of lethargy on the part of, uh, let's say, a particular artist. They'll like the lethargy ones will end up producing just escapism because it's easy. It's again, it's like uh, it doesn't require any willpower. It'd be like, okay, I'm just not going to. Yeah, I, I do a lot with my nutrition and exercise. It's like, well, I'm just not going to regulate my diet. I'm never going to exercise and that's easy and I can have all the short-term pleasure I want, right? And if you think of that with an author, well, then you're going to create things that are vicious, probably, right? Unless you get, I guess, unless you get lucky somehow. And the same thing if you have the propaganda side, like I know the answer. And why, so why aren't people, you know, producing things that resonate? It's because I think that they, 
uh, they are, we, we progressively are away from the Aristotelian mean. Um, and I, I don't, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm over, overshooting that. You can tell me if you think I am again. Um, hmm. I mean, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of issues, I suppose. With, I think, as more finance has been put into things like mainstream cinema, um, people are less risk averse, which means that it, there's a sort of um, there's a uh, more of a, t a tendency to play it safe, whereas other. It's more kind of, I mean, it's more interesting to take a bit of a risk now and then. Um, someone like Hitchcock, for example, who made a hell of a lot of movies. A lot of them took, I mean, a lot of them took a lot of risks, like um, something like Rope, which is just set in one room over the course of in real time, I think. I haven't, it's one I'm meaning to see, but I haven't seen yet, where it's, all he has is one room and two characters, two principal characters, and they come in and other people kind of come in and they've there's there's kind of story of them murdering somebody and trying to keep the keep the body concealed and things like that. And you I you don't see a mainstream director do something like that now. Just go like, okay, let's strip everything away and see if we can make a story. Or even something like Dial M for Murder, that's mostly set in one in one apartment. So how do you how do you make that how do you tell a story in in such a small space with a limited set of characters? There's basically four characters in well, five characters in uh, in Dial M for Murder. So it's it, there are not enough there are not enough people willing to Willing to really step outside the box. I think what people, what one thing that's that's disappeared. Don't know if you've noticed this. Like the fifty million dollar movie has just disappeared. Everything is either like two hundred and fifty million dollars or half a million indie flick shot on a DLS, DSLR or an iPhone. There's nothing in that middle that will create a kind of cult risky very energetic story that has some that can afford to kind of get like attract a few stars to get it on a screen on like a big screen and get it on a in a cinema for like two or three weeks and for it to get a following and maybe strike gold and maybe make a massive profit that kind of thing has just dis is basically disappeared out of the out of the zeitgeist and that's a very unfortunate thing. I mean, it creates a lot of flops, obviously, but it also creates the occasional massive hit and a lot of cult hits. I mean, you wouldn't have something like Event Horizon um, without that, as hilariously flawed as that film is, but a lot of fun at the same time. Yeah, I have noticed that. I've noticed that with uh, games as well, um, where at least among the mainstream. Now you've got the, at least with games, the rise of like small developers, like indie developers. And so they're feeling a bit of that niche. Um, mm. Still, still nowhere close to like a middle budget, right? If you look at a triple A game budget versus like an indie team, like the indie team is, is uh, 
what's what's the what's the turn of phrase? They have like a shoestring budget, and right. then you've got you know upwards of millions of dollars to produce um, like a high end video game. So I guess yeah, they're in a bit of the same spot. Um, but I guess you can get away with with cheaper on the indie game scene as opposed to with cinema. Uh, I guess we're spared that with literature in a sense, right? Because it's uh, it's words on a page, except for like things. I guess if you need to do like research for nonfiction. Uh, true, yeah, I do true. think you're you're, yeah, I think you're correct to uh, point out the fact that with this amount of money, it requires, I mean, it requires a lot of courage because if you screw up, like you're done for. Um, and actually, you might just not even be able to get the money, right? Like, mm. like if no one's offering fifty million and they're saying no, we're only looking for like a two hundred million if you're if you're asking for less than that then like very clearly your product's going to be inferior and also you better follow the formula because we want to have a return right i'm sure that's what they're mm -hmm. dealing with if you're you're uh you know a screenwriter nowadays a director um dealing from the production side of things um we so what's our what's our uh conclusion like it uh because i want to move to if we if we have time to talk about we talked about some bad reading practices um but i want to know what I, you think about the idea of decadent taste if whether or not that kid that that's true or that's just me reading way too much nietzsche <laughs> um i think that this I, I, I think there's probably something to that I, I do want to say though, this is one of those this is one of those topics that can run the risk of providing um providing writers with absolution that it's not their fault, it's the reader's fault. And there's a lot to be said about decadent taste. I mean I think I think I would basically I think I would basically agree with you on that, on the decadent taste point. But I would also say that it's it's not necessarily just a bad reader. I think there's there's also an element of maybe the story just isn't that good. And maybe like there are maybe the, the flaws that are being pointed out are are in fact correct. That's what I want to get onto, actually, because, oh, yes, uh, you know, I, I edit, I do freelance editing. And yes, yes, there is such a thing um, as poor writing. I, I, I don't I thank you for pointing that out, by the way. I don't want to make this like let's bash the reader day. Um, yeah, I, I just especially that considering, especially considering we're both authors and people <laughs> I, I ideally want people to read the books. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Uh, well, we're both also readers, uh, to be fair. Uh, mm, in fact, I, I'm much more of a reader. I read many more books than I write. It turns out. Um, mm. <laughs> but, so but yeah, so yeah. Well, you we, you would hope you would hope that. But when I first <laughs> started writing, I didn't know what I was doing, and I wasn't as uh, well read at all. Uh, and so, and I know that there are lots of authors who started out just like I did, who wrote like a terrible first novel, which I did uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> because I didn't read anywhere near enough. Uh, also, is, is, there's a bunch of reasons for it, but yeah, definitely not reading enough. But in terms of poor writing, uh, I think this these are going to be a lot more clear. I think this is a, the reason why I spent so much more time on reading is because things like uh, you mentioned poor spelling, diction, grammar, syntax, those type of things are kind of obvious. Um, 
hopefully we can touch on some bad writing habits um, that are less obvious. This one I see a lot, but I see no one talking about. And and it is, uh, let's say, really poor pacing in a book because the book's plot is plotted over multiple books without the conception that each book actually needs to have a complete plot arc along with the plot arc that spans across a series of books. Have you seen this? Uh, oh, okay. Um, yes, I have. It's, it's, uh, it, I think it's an easy trap to fall into when you're writing a when you write a series it's a definitely it's something that i was very conscious of when writing the four guardians i was like this has to come to a each each this is a four book series it's like each of these has to wrap itself up i mean there and there also obviously has to be okay there's the hooks for the next one and it is a series of events right but there has to be that that uh, satisfying climax to this story which then leads on to the next one and it's it's often meant actually cutting before i plan to like i think in both of the middle books in the in the burning plains and in the serpent's lair i stopped the book before i planned to stop the book because it was a better place to stop and a more satisfying place to stop than it would have been otherwise so it is something it's it is definitely something that is really really easy to do and uh, something to be mindful of yeah it's something i was guilty of uh, my first book suffered from this where i thought okay i'm going to write like a two book thing and then i thought it was going to be a three book thing and the entire first book ends up being the exposition essentially to the story now the events like events are happening or whatever but because the larger because I'm because I was so fixated on the larger plot um, across the books, I wasn't paying attention to this first book wrap like having a solid wrapped up plot arc so that the reader knew why what was happening mattered. And so they mm. weren't able to invest. And so they they weren't able to feel like anything was really at stake. And you you outlined earlier why that just, you know, you're crashed and burned at that point you're done, right? Like if there's no, if they don't feel like there's anything at stakes, they don't care. And at the moment the reader says, why should I care? You should, you know, as a, as an author, I know I'm like, oh no, <laughs> I screwed up somewhere. Mm. Right. Well, it's um, something that I, that, that I, it's a trap that I sort of fell into without of the ashes. And it's something that later on, I kind of have said, this is some, it would have been better as two books. <laughs> and in fact, like in the, I think in the second edition of it, I consciously split it so that like in the middle, it is sort of a book one and book two. So if you get out of the ashes, guys, you're getting two books in one because it is like there is that that's a place where there was a natural stopping point about halfway through. And then it carried on for another half of the book. So it's I would like I, th I would say they do both work together, but they it was a thing of like one story arc finished and another one started if that makes sense but there was no, there it was does. yeah yeah it's something i ameliorated by literally going this is book one and this is book two <laughs> <laughs> which 
within the book. Yeah, and sometimes you can get away with that, right? Where because like if if the pacing issues come, like in the latter half of the book, then like yeah, like okay, well if you split it at that point, then like maybe it really was like we we aren't ready to re-enter a new exposition halfway through a book, uh, and splitting mm. it makes two books where you have exposition into conflict, uh, like that. Um, another way that the, I found the pacing can be. Uh, suddenly ground to a halt. Uh, and this might be me, and it might be my particular taste, if you will. Um, but mm-hmm. I find that uh, oftentimes, particularly new writers, uh, particularly in the genre of fantasy, uh, well, I say genre of fantasy, I have a whole thing about genre. Fantasy and science fiction stories um, are vulnerable to what I call hyper discursion. So uh, for the listeners out there, because you might already know what I mean by that, but there is such a dearth of figurative language that every time a thing is described, um, it is described both inefficiently because the point of the figurative language is to cast an, a sensory image, if not an image, you know, like a sense, like a smell, taste, whatever, um, that communicates an experience faster, right? Um so it lacks that. So it's it's inefficient that way. Um, but also when something is uh, hyper-discursive, I notice the pacing gets ground down because there is also this um, lack of knowing when to show versus when to tell. So like everything gets rendered into scene as opposed to you have scenes that are uh, split up by summary that, you know, when it's not relevant to the plot, we summarize and then when, we, when it is relevant, we go into scene, uh, things are happening, there's dialogue. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's two things there, I guess. I'm, I'm trying to cover ground quickly since we've been going on for a while. But, yeah, have you mm-hmm. seen either of those? Either too much raw discursion, meaning no no figurative language, no similes, no metaphors, none of that. Um, and and or also not knowing when when to show and when to tell, when to go into scene, when to summarize. Um. Yeah, I would say I've seen both of those. I think there's there's an advert. I think so there's an extension of that and also actually the opposite to that. So there's a point where um, I think often again with new writers, people can get bogged down in describing stuff. And this, again, is something that happens a lot in fantasy and a lot in sci-fi where you're literally where everything gets described as much as possible like it is there's so much description of a city or a house or like the the journey up a street and every little thing is described and at a certain point you're just like okay can we just get on with it i get it we're in a city i get it you're you're telling me what's around here i understand now please get to the point um the other thing as well actually is sort of the opposite problem to the the lack of um metaphors and things and that is um way too many of them i find that irritating as a reader where i just think it it has the same problem for me it's like okay i get it you you're showing off it's like um it's like listening to a guitar solo go on for 2 hours i'm like no matter how no matter how like um beautifully wordy you are or you think you are 
you're not getting to the point and you need to get to the point. There needs to be something. Something needs to happen now. You know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. There, there's a point where, like, even my love for purple pros, it gets too purple. Like, it's like, mm. okay, are there any other colors? Are there any other yeah, colors right. in the book? Or is it just purple paint brush on each page? Um, mm. uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've seen that. Uh, I, I've seen that quite a bit. And oftentimes, what ends up happening, you know, if you get that excess of um, excess of figurative language, they're they're committing two sins at the same time. One is they are just they're not they're not using the simile or the metaphor the metaphor um, or any other literary device for that matter for a purpose. They're they're using them for the sake of saying like, hey, look how many of these things I can use, um, mm -hmm. and it's not going to be relevant, right? Because like when you say like get to the point, what you're saying there is okay, what you're telling me isn't relevant to the character's development or the plot, which are where the stakes are, which is what I care about, which is relevant, right? So like, that's when, I didn't mention this before as a, as a reader sin, but skimming, because uh, I have experienced a lot of readers skim read. Now there's two reasons for skim reading. One is that the author just did something that we just described, right? Like where they just are talking about things that are irrelevant to the story at this point. Like they've gone on either too long or they're just, just they're not very good at picking out things in narrative perspective that are relevant. Um, the other is that they've read a lot of contemporary modern fiction and are used to being spoon fed. I will put that in there too. This is another reader sin, actually, or not reader sin, writer uh, that I don't have on my list, but you can tell me if you think that it is legitimate. So um, I've noticed in a lot of contemporary fiction, this is traditionally published stuff, usually the author will exposit a thing so there's narrative exposition then they'll mm -hmm. have the character say it and then they'll show it being done or maybe it's not in that order but like they will feed you the same information three times often within the same page sometimes within the same paragraph have you seen this mm, yes yeah i get you yep it's uh yeah, yeah. it's it's irritating, yes. <laughs> Why is it irritating, right? Because there's like, obviously we both agree, like, stop doing that, right? Please yeah. stop spoon feeding me. Why do we, why is it that in this case, as readers, we're just, we are, uh, our reader rights are being infringed to, to play on the title? I, uh, I think in this case, that is, again, I think that, again, oh, gosh, and you know, it might not be new writers this is the thing like you see this more often in new writers i think that someone writing that is someone who is not confident enough in their own ability to communicate a point because one of because it's like one of them is enough and it's part of it is they don't feel like they've done it satisfactorily and part of it is maybe they don't necessarily trust the reader to get what they're on about it's like no i understand it's i know what you i know what you mean you had me the first time um it's something that it's something that can be kind of cleared up in an edit or two you know what i mean like it, I, it's something it, 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 that's very first draft what you've just said there like something being communicated three times on the same page so you just needed to read through it read through it with a slightly more critical eye and go, okay, ah, okay, I don't need the second bit or I don't need the first bit. 
I can just like whichever makes the point the best is how you would how you would do it. Usually, the thing happening is uh, the best way. I find. Yeah, I would like agree you, if you can go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, like you wouldn't say something's about to happen if it was going to happen exactly the way the person said it. Like, I'm okay with someone like having a character like say, "This is about to happen," and then something happens that they don't expect. That's different. But having the same thing communicated three times, yeah. For sure. It needs it can be some of that can just be excised. I and mean, I would definitely advise someone does it, but I would say in this case, um we I think probably agree on that, and this is this is gonna come back to the taste issue because we have what I would argue is um more virtuous taste in reading. Um and the reason I think that is because what we're saying should be edited out is purposefully put and left in in a lot of um, what would be referred to as trad published uh, commercial fiction. So this is the idea of this is going to be the stuff that we pump, 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 pump out there as fast as possible. And mm -hmm. um, I think that it's done on purpose because they don't trust that the readers will retain the information. And I don't think they'll trust the readers to pay close enough attention. And, okay, so there's a question. Um, tell me if you've ever experienced this ever from some of your work that has mostly, so you, you've, you've shared it with people where it's published out there. You've gotten a lot of good feedback from most people, but then we'll say someone, perhaps someone who is either reads lots of I'll call like mainstream commercial fiction, or perhaps just doesn't read very much at all. Either way, um, look at the work, and I guess we're going back to to reader sins now. They <laughs> will they will tell you that you didn't put something in, or that didn't mention something that you actually have whole paragraphs explaining. Have that has that happened to you? Where it's like, oh, I wish you would have explained this better, and then like you open the book and it's like, look. Like I explained this for like multiple, <laughs> look, it's here. You didn't read this bit, did you? Um, Has that I'm happened? Gonna, you, I'm, you, oh, dad, you get, I'm going to have to be careful when I talk about this. Okay, so <laughs> The Eye of the Universe is a difficult, I, I think it's more difficult a book than the other things I've written, partly because of just what it is, right? It's It's a different, it's a different kind of book. Than what I would usually write. Um, and I have had someone completely misunderstand the ending of the book. Like, and like completely misunderstand it. And I thought to myself, like, how have you gotten there? Like, I don't understand how you've gotten there. But at the same when when the conversation was had about it, I was like, oh, well, I don't know, maybe I didn't communicate it as well as I thought I did, but right, I, I don't know. I don't really know how you've gotten there. And this person still enjoyed the book and still really highly rated the book, but they were like, I just don't, I just don't like the ending because it didn't do, it did this thing and whatever. And I was thinking to myself, how have you gotten there? And then so when other people have, have read it, and they talked to me about the end. So oh, I love the end of the end. It was exactly what I, it's, it's exactly the ending 
it's great. Like people lo- like loved the ending and explained why in a way that made me go like, yes, exactly. That's exactly what I was doing. And I think part of the problem was the way the book was read. And maybe it just, maybe things were missed and maybe things were skimmed over. I don't know. I'm not in this person's head. But that has happened with the Eye of the Universe. Um, I think it's happened with Red Saints as well. I think some of the, like, some of the criticism of Red Saints, I, uh, I am a lot more on board with. Um, than the Eye of the Universe. That's due another. That's due another edition, actually, where some of it can maybe uh, ironed out in uh, in Red Saints. But yeah, it's definitely happened. It's definitely happened in in that book in uh, in the Eye of the Universe. To my chagrin, I will say, I've, I don't normally get annoyed when I get criticism because it's like, okay, like that there's something I can do in future to correct that issue but when it's something when it was something like that it did irk me um has that happened with you yeah so the easy example um i have my first book was itself admittedly it was bad but in the first chapter um there is a scene of particular violence and then with in and around that scene there's an explanation to the social structures as to the people's religion and why they're engaging in this violent ritual um and the reader happened to be one of my professors in grad school who happened to be of um, a particular persuasion not to be able to stomach what really was like very a very mild amount of uh, was you call it like domestic violence between a couple, and it was it was mm. very mild. Um, but that <laughs> the word they would use is triggered him enough that it obliterated him noticing uh, entire paragraphs around that happening. So he right. literally said, like, oh, you know, it would have been good to describe this. I went back and looked. I even showed him, and that's what he told me is that the. Um, let's say the emotional reaction that he had to that particular scene um, made it hard for him to like, uh, what's the right word? Not remember is not exactly the right word process all of the rest Mm. of what was happening. Um, Now I actually don't think that that's an author's fault, right? Like it's, Mm. if, if someone has a particular sensitivity that causes their brain to shut off, uh, you know, what, what what am I going to do about it? Right. Uh, well, that's like saying, what we go ahead. That's what we kind of spoke about earlier. It's like everyone brings their own baggage to everything. Like it's it's not necessarily like you don't know as as the writer what's going to what someone is kind of stapling onto your story and expecting it to carry. It's um, it's just you know, you, as as an author, you do the best you can. Or you communicate something as clearly as you can, and sometimes people just don't get it, and it's you know, it's something that happens. They're not. Yeah. It's not. It doesn't make them a bad person. It just. It's just like okay, well, you know, I, I didn't get you. Maybe, maybe I'll get you with something else. Yeah. So we've been going on for a while. Is there anything else? I've got other things in my notes. Um, 
about essentially writing errors, but a, a lot of them are things people know, like obviously a DSX machina is bad. Like if you just have a plot, con that's a plot contrivance for all of you. I, there's a surprising number of people who don't know what a DSX machina is, uh, in, at least in my <laughs> conversations. So I guess for the, for the listeners who might not know, um, that's when uh, it, it's got out of the machine and it comes from uh, bad playwrights in ancient Greece where they typically would use like a, a crane to just have a character come in like a, some type of deity to solve a problem all of a sudden that this, the solution just comes out of nowhere. It's totally like, and because I wanted this to happen. It's a plot contrivance. Uh, professor used to say you can see the seams or you can see the stitches. You can you know, see where this was just inserted into the story and it, it's unbelievable. Um, I have a, a, a sub note here, lack of versimilitude, right? It, it's, it does not emulate enough of life for it to convey that uh, human universal. Uh, and I have the same thing for characters, right? Like characters need to have mm -hmm. a degree of versimilitude. That means they need to have a certain amount of consistency of their characterization. They can't mm -hmm. just be anyone when the plot calls for it. They have to be, you'd say, convincing people of their own they don't have to be realistic mm -hmm. exactly but convincing believable because you try to make a realistic character you're into trouble and if you want to know more about that uh my uh michael and i talk about that in human uh all too human mm -hmm. i think it's podcast writing cast number five um mm -hmm. but yeah plot armor Mahinali. as well plot, plot armor, armor yeah there's another one uh, plot armor you, uh, is incredibly frustrating it. yeah tell tell us yeah, well, tell me about it <laughs> plot armor essentially being um a character survives something that should kill them um because they're needed later on in the story not because it makes sense not because of any of their actions or something like that just because just out of kind of blind luck they they survive um and it is it's an it's something that punches the stakes of a story right in the face um it's fine if they like if they get out of it through their own ingenuity, then then that's something. Then that's a different story. Or if they survive, but they they're affected by it, that's another story. But if if someone gets like um, I don't know, if someone like get if you, if you're writing a, a fantasy fight scene and someone gets run through with a sword, um. And they live through it, and they're just fine later. That's uh, that's not good, to say the least. No, it breaks that verisimilitude. And and as you're describing it, I think uh, it's good for writers out there to know it's not merely the break in verisimilitude, though that in in and of itself is bad. Like that's enough to just wreck a story if you keep doing that, uh, or even if you just mm. do it once at the wrong time. Right? It just kills your. Mm. Uh, what do we call it in grad school? Um, Investment. Nar <laughs> narrative authority, right? Right. So like okay, you as an yeah. author have a certain narrative authority. The, the reader is willing to suspend their disbelief for you until you do that. And then they're just like, I don't trust that you're, you're going anywhere good with this anymore. Um, but mm. deeper than that is a problem where authors do not establish um, the proper stakes and I think oftentimes you get into this plot armor problem because every stake has to be life or death. And when you do that mm. over and over and over again, 
you have to start having the eventually you're just going to have to have the plot bend around the character living because otherwise the story ends rather than having the stakes be such that um, you can afford to have the character lose. You can afford to have the protagonist suffer a defeat because it's not life or death every single time. Uh, I think it's mm. a huge issue, particularly uh, in fantasy and science fiction. Yep, recurring villains have a have a massive. That can be a big problem with recurring villains because they, if you keep beating the villain, if your heroes keep overcoming the antagonist every time they encounter them, then again, it's a big punch to the stakes. So, well, I know they're going to be fine because they're always fine. Yeah, he's there's no there's no feeling of risk. Uh, all right, I think we we've pretty well exhausted at least um, almost most of my notes. Is there anything else on this topic that uh, you you feel like you want to cover? Um, I no, I think we're uh, I think I think we we went for a while there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, <laughs> you said you check really... in after an hour, and it's been nearly two. <laughs> oh yeah, well we we were so into. I I did realize that, but I was thinking we we're such into the conversation. I I, I figured you would. You'd be all right, uh, and you'd let me know. Yeah, it's all good. Uh, it's all good. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, before we go, um, we'll do another round of shilling here on the Wild Isle Writing Cast. So, uh, thank you all there out there for listening. Uh, before you go, please check out our other podcast uh, on Wild Isle Lit dot com uh you can check out my editing service a wild isle style guide uh, my fiction is on there as well uh, i brought up a bunch of stuff blogs uh all of that oh it's really just one blog not multiple blogs uh but yeah check that out i really appreciate it um and also make sure to check out matt's stuff matt tell everyone again where they can grab your material uh well you can find my material on substack you can find it on amazon um, if you're a fan of epic fantasy, um, the Four Guardians is right up your alley. A lot of a uh, lot of good action, rich characters, and uh, and high adventure with a with a, 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 with some very very uh, high stakes in there. Um, if you're more of a sci-fi fan, you have uh, Red Saints and the Eye of the Universe. Um, Red Saints, a bit more, maybe a bit more crime-ish um, than Eye of the Universe. Eye of the Universe, you can get a taster of that at um, Drunk Wordsmith on YouTube. Um, a link, I guess. Would that be linked somewhere, maybe? Yeah, so I'll have links to uh, as much of this as I can put links to on uh, YouTube and then on SoundCloud. Um, so, yeah, I'll make sure people can find your stuff. Cool, cool. And uh, yeah, also horror, which is currently more on Substack and the Deadland series is more horror focused um, and a horror kind of dark fantasy, which is currently three chapters deep uh, called The Shattered Lands. That's also on Substack, along with a lot of other short stories. Also, The Alchemy Lab, where um, I imagine we'll be having another chat uh, shortly. And uh, drug wordsmith on YouTube. All right, thank you. I think you, that's everything, Matt. Yeah, thank you, Matt. That was great. I, I am looking forward to having a conversation over in a tavern at the Alchemy Lab. Um, and thank you indeed, guys indeed. all for listening. Yeah, thank you guys all for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time.